Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Dr. Philip Ovadia is a board-certified cardiac surgeon and founder of Ovadia Heart Health. As a heart surgeon who is once morbidly obese himself, Dr. Ovadia has seen firsthand the failures of mainstream diets and medicine. He realized that what helped him lose over 100 pounds, focusing on his metabolic health, was the same solution that could have prevented most of the thousands of open heart surgeries he has performed. Dr. Philip is the author of the book, Stay Off My Operating Table, a heart surgeon's metabolic health guide to lose weight, prevent disease, and feel your best every day, which I got a copy of and absolutely love. Welcome to the show, Dr. Philip Ovadia. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah. Um, so I guess first question is, how, how did you become a heart surgeon? Yeah. So, you know, I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor uh, growing up and never really could pinpoint exactly why that was. Um, I didn't have any doctors in my family. Um, I believe it probably had something to do with my older brother who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, as a child. And, you know, I was about six years old or so at that time and probably seeing, you know, kind of what he went through and seeing how doctors helped him um, influenced me, uh, in subtle ways. And I, you know, went through usual, I went to college and medical school and, uh, always knew that I wanted to do, always knew that I wanted to be a surgeon and I wanted to do something, uh, you know, in the surgical field. And as I started my training, uh, in surgery, I, just was attracted towards heart surgery. I, I found it, you know, just fascinating the physiology of the heart and the technical aspects of doing heart surgery. And so that was the uh, career path that I uh, decided to pursue. And here I am now, uh, just about 20 years later, and uh, haven't haven't looked back at all. Yeah, super interesting. And uh, I'm just always curious, like, what does the day of a heart surgeon look like when you're on the operating table? Yeah. So, and realize that, you know, my day, uh, probably looks a lot different than a lot of heart surgeons, uh, because of the ways that my career has changed, uh, recently. Um, but I do travel work for uh, heart surgery now. Uh, I, it's called locums. And so I, I travel all around the country to hospitals that are uh, in need of heart surgery services and don't have the surgeons to perform that. And so I'll spend anywhere from a week to 10 days at a time at a hospital. And, you know, the typical day is, you know, starts uh, relatively early in the morning and seeing, you know, whatever patients are in the hospital 
uh, patients that may have already had surgery or getting prepared for surgery. And then uh, we head to the operating room. And depending on the day, you know, I may spend anywhere from, you know, four to eight to 10 hours uh, in the operating room, uh, you know, and that can be usually on, you know, multiple operations, but sometimes one long operation in a day. And then uh, kind of at the end of the day is is the wrap up of, uh, you know, going back and seeing the patients that are in the hospital and and dealing with whatever, you know, other new patients need to be seen. And uh, and then, you know, it can be very unexpected and very unpredictable because sometimes heart surgery is an emergency situation that, you know, will get called uh, in the middle of the day or in the middle of the night uh, needing to do um, surgery. But, you know, so overall, it, it's hard to say that there's a typical day. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say it's never boring and it's uh, always interesting. And I feel blessed every day that I can, you know, help people who need that service and, uh, you know, who need heart surgery. Uh, but, you know, as we're going to get into, the other thing that I've discovered uh, in the last few years now is that a lot of people who ended up on my operating table and needed heart surgery, you know, didn't necessarily need to be there. And there were a lot of steps along the way uh, that could have prevented them from needing the heart surgery. And so I have a, a renewed interest or, or a new interest and a passion uh, and the kind of secondary part of my career now in helping people to not need heart surgery. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and thanks for for giving some of that detail. And so I, I want to get into that now. What um, what changed your perception? And was it primarily your own journey uh, to lose weight and get healthier? Yes, it was primarily my own journey. So, you know, my story uh, goes back that I was, you know, progressively unhealthy throughout my career as a heart surgeon. Uh, and about six years ago now, I found myself at a spot where I was morbidly obese. Um, I was pre-diabetic and I kind of knew I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. I was following the path, you know, that many of the patients that I took care of had followed. And, you know, I was at a loss as to what to do because I had tried pretty much everything I had learned in medical school as to, you know, how to lose weight, uh, how to be healthy. I had, you know, done the calorie counting and eating less and moving more and eating a low fat diet and eating according to the food pyramid. And it wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for my patients, you know, over and over again, I would see that. And thankfully, you know, I came across some different ideas about why we get unhealthy, why we get obese. And specifically, I was at a medical meeting and heard Gary Taubes deliver a lecture. And he had uh, just written The Case Against Sugar. And of course, prior to that, had written Why We Get Fat. Uh, and, you know, what he talked about made a lot of sense. And, you know, the concept of the types of food that we eat being more important than the amount of food that we eat and the interplay, you know, between those two uh, made a lot of sense. And I read his books and I started eliminating sugar and carbohydrates and ultimately, you know, processed food. And 
Over the intervening years, I was able to lose over 100 pounds. I was able to correct my pre-diabetic uh, condition. And I came to realize, you know, that this is what was going to help, uh, you know, people not need heart surgery. And I came to realize how important, um, you know, sugar, carbohydrates, metabolic health is in the development of heart disease. Interesting. And how did that, like, how did you come to grips with that in terms of your role? How did it make rethink your own role and your perception of how you help people? Yeah. So it made me realize that, you know, I needed to, you know, take on a different, uh, sort of career path, a different aspect of my career, because while I continue to work as a heart surgeon, um, I really have become passionate about helping people not need heart surgery. And I always sort of, uh, you know, somewhat jokingly say, you know, my new goal is to put myself out of business. Uh, And I really would like to get to the point where a lot less people need heart surgery. And so along those lines, you know, I wrote I wrote the book, Stay Off My Operating Table. As you mentioned, that came out last year. And I now have a telemedicine practice where I work with people, you know, one on one to help them, uh, you know, prevent heart disease or in many cases manage the heart disease that they already have, uh, you know, in sort of a different paradigm than, you know, they've been used to. And, um, you know, and then I work with uh, companies as well. I I do uh, group uh, seminars and group health management uh, for companies and organizations and uh, just really, you know, looking to get the word out uh, in any way I can to all of the people who need to hear this important message because heart disease is the number one killer in the United States and worldwide. It has been the number one killer, you know, in the United States now for over 40 years. And we really have not been making a significant impact on that. And I believe that it is because we've become focused on the wrong things. And we really put much of our effort, really the majority of our effort in the healthcare system on taking care of people once they are already sick. And we have lost focus on trying to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. Interesting. Yeah. And you have a great section of your book um, called The System is Broken and What to Do About It that gets into this really well. And um, one thing I I really like, I'm just going to pick out certain parts of the book that I thought were really interesting and really important. You have like some practical advice for people on how to stay off your operating table, obviously, and improve their metabolic health. And one of the sections is make one sustainable change at a time. Um, Can you talk about this and, and like why that's important, why you chose to write about that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, as people are trying to, uh, you know, make the significant, oftentimes significant changes that are needed uh, in order to, you know, either undo the damage that's already been done or prevent future damage from occurring. Um, Their tendency is oftentimes to try and kind of, you know, do the complete 180 and change, you know, everything at once. And I find that there are two problems with that approach. Um, The two problems are that 
if you change everything at once and it works, let's say, you know, you get great results, you still don't really know, you know, what, which of those many changes that you made were useful and which ones weren't useful. And, you know, if you're trying to make this long-term change, uh, you know, it it can be difficult because then you don't know, like, you know, what you can reintroduce or, or, you know, not reintroduce. Um, More commonly, though, the, the, the more common problem with that approach is that it doesn't work. And, you know, people just get very overwhelmed, they get very frustrated, and then they don't really know what to do next. So instead, you know, the approach that I try and get people to take is let's just focus on one thing at a time, Um, you know, and usually the first thing to focus on is the foods that you were eating. Uh, And then, you know, once we get things kind of straightened out with your diet, then we can start worrying about the exercise and then we can start bringing in the stress relief and then, you know, all the other uh, things that are important to overall health. But I like people to kind of make, you know, one change at a time that they can then track, see the outcomes of that change and decide if that's working or not working for them, and then kind of build upon that and evolve from there, rather than just trying to change everything at once. A lot of people ask me about how to make liver more tasteful and how to cook it or incorporate other organ meats on carnivore. Optimal Carnivore can help you do just that with their grass-fed organ complex. It was created by carnivores for carnivores. They start by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, gently freeze-drying the organs, and encapsulating them into convenient bovine gelatin capsules. Just six of these capsules a day is the same as eating an ounce of raw organ meat. I personally take these every single day, as does my wife. Even though we both eat liver and other organ meats, our ancestors would have eaten the whole animal, and this unique blend has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, kidney, spleen, etc. And I think it's great to get a daily dose of these organs when you can. So it covers all your bases, whether you're at home or traveling. What's also cool is they plant a tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So visit www.optimalcarnwar.com slash carnwarcast and use the code carnwar10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Thanks and back to the show. Yeah, I completely agree. And often... Uh, when I try to help people, that's that's really something I focus on is what is the smallest change you can make um, that will start to make a difference. And um, another section you have that I think is so important um, for people inside the carnivore community, general people just trying to improve their health, more importantly, um, is a big barrier people talk about is I can't do this because I need to go to birthday parties. I need to have these family events. I have to go out to restaurants with my family. Um, Can you talk about the section you have on that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, an important part of these changes is that they do need to be sustainable and they do need to be, you know, adaptable to everyday life. Um, We don't live in bubbles and, you know, we, need to be out there, you know, in the world interacting with people. And so, you know, I tried in the book to give a lot of, you know, kind of practical tips that can help navigate those situations. Um, Things like, you know, 
if you're going to a social event and you're not sure of, you know, what the food options are going to be there, you know, eat before you go to the event. Uh, eat at home before you go to the event. So you're not going to be, you know, starving when you get there. And then, you know, if you get there and there are some things that are, you know, are, are you know, on your plan, um, you know, you can partake a little bit more. And if there aren't, then you can just enjoy the situation. You know, oftentimes the food has become the focus of these social situations. And, you know, one of the things that I hope people start to, um, you know, gain from this is that the food doesn't always need to be the focus. You know, focus on the people around you, the people that you're with, enjoy the experiences. And good food can be additive to that, but it doesn't need to be the center point of all that. Uh, and, you know, I just think that as we make these, you know, like I said, life changes, these sustainable life changes, we do need to find ways to adapt it into everyday life. And I think there are lots of, you know, ways to do that. And there are, you know, I've had my successes you know, now over the, you know, five plus years that I've been doing this. Um, and so in the book, I go through a lot of those little tips that can help people to negotiate those situations. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, and another section of your book I really like is the big myths. Um, can you talk about some some of the big myths you outline in your book? Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, again, part a lot of my journey um, ended up being unlearning, you know, the things that I had learned in medical school. And, uh, you know, I, I really, you know, I talk about how being a doctor in a lot of ways almost worked against me because I had all of these things that I had been taught in medical school. And then all of these things that, you know, both me as a physician and other doctors, you know, end up repeating to patients. And we realize that, you know, a lot of them are just not true. Um, and so, you know, unlearning those things was a big part of my process. And again, as I, you know, went through them in the book, um, I hope that people will, will kind of recognize that as well. Um, and, and really, you know, myth number one, I think is, is, a big one that is very important for people to understand. And that myth is that only obese people are metabolically unhealthy. You know, we have equated, um, you know, being overweight, being fat with being unhealthy. Um, and many times they do go together, but what's important and the problem with that myth is that we then assume that anyone who isn't overweight must be healthy. And that really is couldn't be further from the truth. You know, when we look at the statistics around metabolic health, while it is true that, you know, if you were obese, you know, your chances of uh, being metabolically unhealthy are, you know, 95 percent. Um, if you are not obese, your chances of being metabolically unhealthy are still 50 percent. Uh, so half of the non-obese people are not metabolically healthy. and you know, that myth, uh, I think, is a very important one, because what that leads to is that a lot of metabolically unhealthy people who are not overweight don't realize that they are metabolically unhealthy and therefore don't take the steps to reverse it until it ends up being, you know, a big problem 
like they are overtly diabetic or they develop heart disease and they are on my operating table. Are people surprised, both colleagues and you know, friends, others, when they talk to you and, and you've developed some of these perspectives on um, heart health and, and taking a more preventative approach and taking your health into your own hands? Yeah, certainly they are. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the healthcare system has become overly focused on taking care of sick people. And, you know, unfortunately, some of that is just out of necessity. There are so many sick people around uh, that it it becomes overwhelming. You know, there there's basically just an endless supply of sick people for uh, doctors and the healthcare system to be taken care of. Uh, so, you know, when physicians like myself start talking out and saying, you know, we don't need it doesn't need to be like this and we can prevent a lot of these people from being unhealthy in the first place, uh, that certainly uh, gets looked at skeptically. And again, it's not that, you know, most physicians don't you know, don't want to be, don't want their patients to be healthy and, uh, you know, don't want to help their patients get healthy. It's just that they truly don't know how to do that. They truly, in many situations, don't even realize that it's a possibility. Uh, One great example of that is, you know, you look at type 2 diabetes and the standard thinking standard dogma in medicine around type 2 diabetes is that it is a progressive disease um, that, you know, you can try and manage, you can try and keep the patient's blood sugar under control as best you can, but that that is going to involve more and more medications over time and that the natural course of the disease is for it to get worse and then lead to, you know, complications down the line. Yet we have, you know, very good published data uh, from Verda Health and others showing that type 2 diabetes is reversible. And, you know, Verda Health published their results that at two years on their program, 6% of their type 2 diabetic patients um, had had their condition reversed, meaning they were off of their medications and their blood sugars were normal. Um, You know, Again, most doctors are not aware of that. Most doctors have not seen that data and do not think that type 2 diabetes is a reversible disease. Yeah, I think that's a great, great perspective and really important message. Um, and in, in your book, you talk about how to eat metabolically healthy on different diets. Uh, so I have to ask why you chose to start with carnivore, but you also include um, all different types of diets, including vegan and vegetarian. Yeah. So again, you know, I, this gets back to, you know, making this work for the real world. And, you know, one of the things that I intentionally tried to avoid, and I think I did avoid in writing this book, was giving everyone the Dr. Ovadia 28-day diet plan and saying that, <laughs> that, you know, that is the only way to be metabolically healthy. Um, and while I personally find the carnivore diet to be, you know, the most, uh, you know, the easiest way, I should say, the most satisfying way for me to maintain my metabolic health. Uh, and I have now done that for, you know, over three years on a carnivore diet. Um, I do recognize that it's not the only way to get metabolically healthy. And what was interesting to me, and what I tried again to point out in the book, was 
you know, what are the commonalities between carnivore, vegan, you know, paleo, Mediterranean, you know, keto, all of these different diets? Because we certainly do see a lot of people succeed with all of these different dietary plans. So what is, you know, the commonality? And, you know, for me, the biggest commonality that stands out is eating whole real food and eliminating processed food. And I think, you know, the more that you can do that within whatever framework you want to work within, the more successful you are going to have in terms of improving your metabolic health. Yeah, that's great. And um, just out of curiosity, what would be the 28-day Dr. Avadia meal plan? Yeah. So as I said, you know, I maintain a largely uh, carnivore diet. Um, I I meat, seafood, uh, dairy, eggs, and uh, not a whole lot else. You know, on an occasional basis, I'll I'll have a baked potato, or I'll have some honey, or you know, uh, something uh, you know, something non-carnivore. But for the vast majority of the time, I maintain a carnivore diet. Uh, and like I said, I just find that to be most satisfying. I find it to be easiest um, to maintain. I find the the shopping is easy. The preparation is easy. Um, you know, the planning, uh, there isn't a whole lot of planning uh, that needs to go into that. So uh, that's what works best for me. But I do truly work with patients, um, you know, in my practice that are doing everything from vegan to carnivore and all the various low carb, uh, you know, iterations in between. And they all are able to find success as long as they stick to the underlying principle of eating whole real food and elimination of processed food as much as possible. Yeah. I I think that's really, um, the big rocks. And has that been a gradual evolution for you or have you, um, did you move very quickly to a more carnivorous diet. Yeah, it was a pretty gradual, uh, it was a gradual process for me. You know, as I mentioned, I started, um, you know, with Gary Taubes and eliminating sugar and then, you know, ultimately kind of minimizing carbohydrates and got into, you know, what I would call a traditional keto diet uh, for quite a while. And I found myself getting lower and lower carb keto and was down to very, you know, exceedingly low carb keto, probably under 20 grams a day. Um, And then I, you know, heard about carnivore. I I came across Sean Baker and, uh, you know, heard about what he was saying. And uh, admittedly, at first I was kind of like, you know, well, you can't really only eat, you know, meat. Uh, But I looked into it and I thought about it and I said, well, I'm really not eating, you know, much besides that at this point. I'm very low carbohydrate. And so I said, you know, let me give it a try for 30 days. And the biggest difference that I noticed was that, you know, the little bit of inflammation that I still had going on uh, was eliminated. Uh, specifically for me, I had struggled with plantar fasciitis and, you know, my right foot would hurt every morning when I got out of bed and I'd sort of hobble around for 10 or 15 minutes. And I had tried all the physical therapy and, you know, everything else to get rid of it. And my third day on carnivore, I got out of bed and I put my foot down and it didn't hurt and it, uh, it didn't come back again, you know, the, the pain in my foot. So, um, you know, whatever it was that I was still eating, um, 
on my very low carb keto that was causing some persistent inflammation, I finally was able to eliminate and uh, you know heal that with a carnivore diet. And then honestly, I just stuck with it because I do find it so satisfying, and it is you know easy uh, for me to maintain you know with my with my schedule. And uh, but as I said, I don't think it's the only way to do it. It's what works for me. And what I do with my patients is find what works for them. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's an excellent perspective. And um, I'm also curious, you had um, uh, reviews or um, maybe testimonials, you would call them in the front mm-hmm. of your book from like Dr. Tro and others. Do you um, keep in touch with other low carb or carnivore doctors? Yes, definitely. You know, one of the things that I am uh, always interested in and and always working on is how do we, you know, grow this community together. Uh, So, you know, Tro and uh, Brian Lenskis were instrumental in helping me, you know, kind of start my practice, my telemedicine, you know, metabolic health focused practice. And uh, I, I learned so much from all the other physicians in this community. Uh, I love going to the low carb uh, medical meetings. Um, I was, you know, recently uh, at the uh, low carb USA meeting in Boca and uh, had, you know, just great interactions with all of the physicians and non-physicians there, the, you know, everyone else involved in the movement. Uh, I'll be going out to the uh, Metabolic Health Summit uh, in uh, Santa Barbara in May. Uh, and I, you know, I interact with as many of the other physicians in this space as I can on a, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, I'm usually exchanging emails or hopping on a Zoom with someone to uh, discuss what we can do as a community to, uh, you know, move to continue this movement uh, and continue the growth in the movement. Because, again, the unfortunate reality is, is that there are way too many people out there. And there are so many people that can be helped, you know, with a focus on metabolic health, uh, that it's not like, you know, any of us need to be in competition with each other. There's more than enough uh, work to be done. And, you know, I think we all bring our unique perspectives uh, to this. And we all need to be working together to just get the word out about metabolic health and how we can grow, uh, the metabolic health, uh, movement. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm really happy that that work is going on and and that you're helping lead it as well. Um, where does medication come in for heart health, ARBs, statins? What, what role do you think they serve? Well, you know, I think that question is is really evolving. Um, obviously, the mainstream take on that is that medications are the cornerstone of, you know, both prevention and treatment for heart disease. And the unfortunate reality that we see is that, you know, when we specifically look at statin medications for, for prevention of heart disease, they really are not living up to the promises. And, you know, statins have been the most widely prescribed class of medication in the United States now for 20 plus years. And we haven't seen a noticeable impact on, you know, heart disease uh, during that time. And so that tells me that, you know, they're not doing what they're promised to do. And that doesn't mean that they have no role uh, it just means that, you know, we shouldn't be depending on 
medications and only medications to deal with the heart disease epidemic. And, you know, that was another sort of um, indication to me that we need to be doing something else. We need to be doing something more to prevent heart disease. And I think, you know, focus on diet uh, and the proper focus on diet, not the low fat, uh, you know, diet that has been uh, put forward as, as preventative for heart disease is where we need to focus on our, our efforts moving forward. So, you know, when I work with my patients, I always have the discussions about medications and whether or not they might be useful for their individual situations. Um, but those, you know, I would say that those conversations are more nuanced than, you know, most doctors care to have. And just like there isn't one right diet for everyone. There isn't one medication that's right for everyone to be on. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the times in medicine, that is the messaging that, you know, if, if you know, a certain blood marker is above X, you know, that you need to be on these medications. And I just find that that is not a useful approach uh, to, you know, preventing and managing heart disease. Interesting. And um, one thing I read, I need to get your take on this, um, on a low carb site that shall not be named uh, several years ago, um, was that one of the main reasons why men have higher cardiac cardiac risk and um, higher rates of heart attacks, et cetera, is um, because they, women have an outlet for um, releasing uh, stored blood. Um, women menstruate and men don't, especially later in life. And so blood um, gets thicker. And by donating blood, um, it's essentially a way to vastly improve longevity and lower your heart disease risk. Um, is there any truth to this? Um, you know, I would say in general, uh, it, it's not that simple. <laughs> So there yeah. may be uh, some role in uh, iron, you know, iron overload is basically what's that, what uh, is uh, being uh, talked about there. And there probably is some role uh, in, you know, iron overload probably does play some role in heart disease for some people that develop it. Uh, but again, it's not that simple that, you know, that's the main reason why people are developing heart disease. Uh, and, you know, there certainly are situations where, you know, for certain patients who have certain conditions, uh, that blood donation, you know, is an important part of their uh, management and can be useful to, you know, prevent heart disease as well as other, um, other uh you know, conditions that can come from um, having excessive iron in your body. Uh, but it's usually not the first thing uh, that I'm focusing on uh, with my patients when I'm uh, helping them to prevent or manage their heart disease. Got it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, and, and Philip, I wanted to ask about your metabolic health tracking system um, that you talk about in your book. What, what is that and what is the idea behind that? Yeah, so the metabolic health tracking system is a supplement to the book that's available, and it kind of goes beyond you know what I could put in the book. Uh, so it has a number of components to it. Um, you know, it is a tracking system, so it does sort of give you a spreadsheet and some useful use 
useful metrics uh, that you know you can be tracking uh, as you're making these changes to to figure out if they're working for you or not. Um, I also have things like shopping lists in there that can help you, you know, navigate the grocery store and select the items there that are going to be supportive of your metabolic health. I have a list of questions that you can ask your doctor, you know, that can serve as sort of a framework for a discussion around metabolic health and to help you figure out whether your doctor really understands metabolic health and is going to be able to support you in your metabolic health journey. Um, Because, you know, I think that's another key uh, principle. It's one of the seven principles of metabolic health that I talk about in the book is that, you know, you need to be working with a doctor or, you know, a practitioner of some sort that is your partner in this journey and is going to be able to help you in the journey. And unfortunately, a lot of the doctors, a lot of the healthcare practitioners that are out there just don't know about metabolic health and therefore aren't going to be, you know, helpful for you as you're trying to improve your metabolic health. That's great. I think that's a great resource for people. Um, well, Dr. Avadia, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm sure people will get a lot from this and highly encourage them to check out your book. Uh, where can people find you and uh, follow along and, and learn more from you? Sure thing. Uh, so again, the book is called Stay Off My Operating Table. It's widely available, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the other usual online places. And it's in uh, both print, uh, you know, electronic and audiobook versions. Uh, my website, uh, ovadiahearthealth.com, so O-V-A-D-I-A hearthealth.com, um, has, you know, all the links to um, everything else that I'm doing, all the podcasts that I appear on, as well as the podcast that I host, uh, the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. And it also has a link there that people can book a call with me to dis- you know, to discuss whether joining my practice uh, would be a good option for them. Uh, as I mentioned, I have a telemedicine practice. Um, it's all online, virtual. I work with people throughout the United States. Uh, so, um, you know, I encourage people to go to the uh, website and uh, check out all the great resources there. Great. I'll certainly have links to that in the show notes and at carnivorecast.com. Thanks again for your time, Dr. Avadia. Thank you, Scott. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivorecast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered? Or who would you like to hear from in the Carnivore Research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CarnivoreCast or go to CarnivoreCast.com. You can also email me at info at CarnivoreCast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.